Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. There are way over 500 people that have responded to Kelly's situation over there. There are a lot of people that are very touched by her uh, missing. And that really does, it does touch my heart that there are still people that care about what happened to her. I know that it wasn't cut and dried and just suicide. And that somebody somewhere does know they have that piece of information where the car was those three days or whether she, where she was those three days and whether or not it was just brought back. And I prayed that God will get a hold of their heart. They'll come forward and they'll help me find out so I can bring her home if they know where she is, whether she's with us or not. Anyway, it does help me some to know that there's that many people that care about what happened to her because if this could, this travesty could happen to her with the lack of um, what you want to call it, investigation or whatever, it could happen to other spouses or whether they're male or female, it could happen to somebody else. That's another reason it needs to be brought to light or either the case needs to be reopened or either the person or persons that know need to come forward and just tell the truth. I know there was a lot that went on the next few days after she went missing. I wish no one, no ill will. I just want to bring Kelly on. Chapter 1, A Missing Military Spouse on Okinawa. At 4.30 a.m. on Saturday, October 29th, the Okinawa police received a call from someone at the Kadena Office of Special Investigations, OSI for short. OSI was calling to let them know that they found the car of missing military spouse Kelly Abad. Her maiden name is Kelly Cribs. 40 minutes later, the Japanese Coast Guard called the Okinawa Prefectural Police to ask if they had been notified about Kelly's car. As the sun rose over the island of Okinawa that brisk October morning, the Japanese police, together with OSI, searched the area where Kelly's car was found. Kelly drove a green Toyota SUV, and it appeared to have been neatly parked above the rugged cliffs of Cape Zampa. Outside the car, there was no sign of Kelly. There was no sign of a struggle. There was nothing. Because this involved the case of an American military spouse, OSI, together with the Japanese, would be handling the investigation. Although reports say it was a 50-50 endeavor, a Japanese authority told reporter Matt Burke that they were under the impression that OSI was taking the lead and that they would just be backup if they needed anything outside the base walls. By 7 a.m. that morning, the Okinawa police were interviewing passersby and they were inspecting Kelly's car, and they even called in a cadaver dog. Nearby, rescue teams from the Kadena Police Station, the Nara Fire Station, and the military searched the coastline. They searched by helicopter, patrol boat, even jet skis. But there were no signs of Kelly. At the scene, authorities for some reason believed that Kelly went over that cliff, by choice, but they never found torn clothing or anything else. Meanwhile, back at the car, authorities found items inside. Inside the car was Kelly's wedding ring, her ID card, her driver's license, her wallet, $6 in cash, a car key, and a note. 
The note was brief. It simply read, quote, love my kids, love my hubby and parents, bye, end quote. According to Kelly's mom, who spoke to me for this episode, the note was written on the back of a hard copy prescription written by a doctor. When authorities saw this note, they made up their mind. Kelly committed suicide by jumping over the cliff. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans, and sometimes their spouses. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. Many of you might find yourselves listening to this podcast for the very first time and very curious about a podcast called Military Murder. Well, I want you to know that I have been doing this show for close to four years now. So if you're interested in this topic, be sure to go back and listen to the other close to 150 episodes released to date. That being said, if you've been here for a while, today's case is a little different than most cases I cover. Most of my cases are open and shut. They either have a conclusion or they are working their way towards a conclusion through the court system. But today's case is a missing persons case and one that I have been interested in for a very long time. Two years ago, I started researching this case, but while it hasn't been hard to get people to talk to me, getting any new information has been very difficult, and while everyone has a feeling that foul play is somehow involved, everything, absolutely everything, is circumstantial. But as we near the 12-year anniversary of Kelly Abad's disappearance, I wanted to release this two-part episode in hopes that Kelly's mother and children could find closure. Today's case is about Kelly Abad, whose maiden name is Kelly Cribs. So you may have seen her called by either name, but I want you to know that she is one in the same individual. Back in 2011, Kelly was an Air Force military spouse with two small children living on Kadena Air Base in Japan. When one Wednesday evening, after attending church off-base at the Maranthana Baptist Church, Kelly seemingly vanished after returning to her on-base house, allegedly tucking her children into bed, never to be seen again, all on the heels of her husband finding a steamy Facebook message on Kelly's Facebook account. While Kelly's body has never been found, the Air Force Office of Special Investigation has ruled Kelly's case as a suicide. But Kelly's mom and many of the military spouses who knew Kelly and people who saw and spoke to her on the day she went missing have a hard time believing this conclusion. This two-part series will have chapter headings because this story doesn't flow as easily as others that I have covered on the podcast. A quick disclaimer that no one has ever been named a suspect, and while suspicions run high when you look up Kelly's case either on Facebook or subreddits or comments absolutely anywhere, no one, absolutely no one has been charged and the Air Force has cleared Kelly's husband as a suspect in Kelly's disappearance. With that in mind, let's explore. Join me today as I tell you the story of the mysterious disappearance of Kelly Cribs Abad. Now, let's dig in. Let's continue with Chapter 1, A Missing Military Spouse Overseas. On October 26, 2011, Air Force Technical Sergeant Vincent Abad, who goes by Vince, arrived at his duplex located on Kadena Air Base at approximately 6.30 p.m. When he arrived, the house was deathly quiet. Absent from the home was his 27-year-old wife, Kelly, and their two young children, 4-year-old Kyrie and almost 2-year-old Vincent Jr. Kelly and the kids were probably just on their way to Wednesday church service. It was a special occasion because that Wednesday, 
the church was doing some form of certificate ceremony for all the kiddos that finished up some form of church schooling, and little Carvey would be receiving her certificate that night. In any event, as Vince walked around the house, he happened upon a computer that was opened to Facebook. It was allegedly Kelly's Facebook profile, and it was there that Vince saw some messages between Kelly and a man named David. David was allegedly a firefighter from Georgia, which is where Kelly was originally from. Vince read the messages, and from what I read from reports and reporting, the messages were pretty steamy, and they appeared to be romantic in nature, which made Vince mad. According to Vince's missing persons report, Vince then went to the Maranthana Baptist Church located in Shabana in Okinawa City to confront Kelly. It also appeared that Vince and Kelly had been seeking marital counseling from one of the pastors at this church. According to Vince's account of events, he went to the church that evening, he saw the kids briefly, then asked to speak to the pastor of the church after the service. The pastor's name is Robert Monteith, but he went by Bob, so I'm going to refer to him as Pastor Bob. After the service, while Vince was meeting with Pastor Bob, Vince got on the phone with Kelly and an argument ensued. Whereas by 9.07 p.m., Kelly allegedly yelled at Vince that she was going to commit suicide and immediately hung up the phone. It's unclear if Pastor Bob heard Kelly's voice and actually heard her say anything to that effect, or if that's just what Vince relayed to Pastor Bob. I've personally tried reaching out to Pastor Bob for clarification, but have not received a response. In any event, the call prompted Vince and Pastor Bob to get up in a frenzy and race to Kadena Air Base where the Abads lived. For some unknown reason, Pastor Bob got in the car with Vince. They rushed to Kadena Air Base, but they must have not been in that much of a hurry because Pastor Bob didn't have access to base and Vince had to stop and get him a base pass, which if you've been in the military, you know that this can take anywhere from at minimum five minutes to 15 minutes, give or take, depending on the time of the day. Then once he got the base pass, according to Pastor Bob, when they arrived at the house, it was between 9.45 and 10 p.m. The house was pitch black and Vince commented that Kelly's car was missing. Vince then parked the car and rushed inside, going directly upstairs to check on the kids. Pastor Bob stayed on the first floor until Vince came downstairs and reported that the kids were fast asleep, but Kelly wasn't upstairs. Vince and Pastor Bob chit-chatted for a little bit and then Vince showed Pastor Bob the steamy Facebook messages that made him upset at Kelly. The pair waited and waited. Apparently, they were waiting for Kelly to return home. Eventually, as it got later, Pastor Bob called one of his staff members to come pick him up, and he left the Abad residence around 10.30 p.m. Then, Vince just waited all through the night at his home while the kids slept. By 6.30 a.m. the next morning, when Kelly hadn't returned home, Vince called base security forces and reported Kelly missing. By 2.45 p.m., at the convincing of the base police, Vince made another missing persons report, this time with the Japanese authorities. At some point, Vince called his mother-in-law, Janice Cribs, who lives in Georgia. And this is what Janice had to say about that interaction. I get confused with their time, you know, because it's like 12 to 14 hours different. So I was really confused about all that because, you know, we had talked to her on Tuesday night, which was already Wednesday morning. Okay. So he must have called me Thursday morning. I never did figure it all out because he said, well, you know, she, have you talked to her? Have you talked to Kelly? And I said, no. And he said, um, well, you know, she didn't come home last night. That's what he said. And I said, what? 
He said, no, she didn't come home last night. And I said, what? Well, you've got to call her friends. You've got to do something. So you got to call work. And, you know, here I am thinking of all these things. The timing of when Vince called Janice is a bit fuzzy to her because there is a 13-hour time difference between the East Coast and Okinawa. Japan is 13 hours ahead of Georgia. That being said, it is easy to mix up the times. When Janice found out that her daughter was missing, she called her oldest daughter and Kelly's half-sister, Jennifer Sherman, to see if she had spoken to her. Janice's brain immediately blanked. How could Kelly be missing? She would never leave her kids. Meanwhile, back in Japan, people were looking for Kelly. Chapter 2. Who is Kelly Abad? You think when you have a child, you'll have them forever. You don't think when you have them that, uh, oh, I'm only going to have them for X amount of years. What could I have done different if I had known Kelly? Kelly Abad was born Kelly Danielle Cribs on September 14, 1984. Kelly was born in Savannah, Georgia, but she grew up in Brooklyn, Georgia, about 50 miles inland. According to her half-sister, Kelly grew up in the country. She lived on a 100-acre farm, and if she wasn't there, she was usually at her grandparents' farm that consisted of 60 acres. Kelly had a few half-siblings. Her oldest half-sister, Jennifer, was 14 years older than Kelly. Kelly also had three half-brothers in between who lived with their biological mother out of state. And Kelly lived at home with her fourth brother. They shared the same mom and dad. They were pretty close, and her and her brother would take a spin in the wagon and whatnot. This is Janice. You know, she was raised on the farm, and um, she took up a lot of time with her grandma, with elderly people. And, you know, she was very uh, tender toward people that had, uh, that were um, crippled, you know, that uh, had issues, mentally crippled type folks. And uh, she later went into uh, the medical field, being a, a nursing assistant, and then uh uh, later being a medical assistant and those kind of things. But anyway, um, she played the piano. She played the flute um, in school in the band. She was uh, outgoing. She she liked to talk. She was she would give you the long version of things, usually not the short one. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, she was uh, like a lot of us. She, she did have her issues, but um, she had a good heart. According to Janice, Kelly was outgoing. She liked to talk, which a lot of people I spoke to told me the same thing. Kelly loved to talk. Instead of giving you the cliff notes, Kelly loved giving the long version of things. When I spoke to Janice, she told me that Kelly had some issues, particularly with her confidence or lack thereof. Kelly always felt like she just didn't fit in. She was a tomboy of sorts, growing up only wearing dresses to church on Sundays. She really wasn't into girly things until much, much later. It appears to me, even from just looking at Kelly's picture, that Kelly was a tiny bit shy, but not shy in the I'm not going to talk to anyone shy, but shy in the fact that she wasn't confident. Although I have heard that she did try or was trying to be more confident. So many people have sent me messages about how sweet Kelly was to them in her interactions with them. According to Janice, Kelly met Vince while he was either stationed nearby in Georgia or he had been there for training or he had friends there. Really, it's hard to say and Janice wasn't 100% sure. But when Kelly met Vince, it appeared that she would go out to meet him in town or they would just communicate over the computer. 
eventually, as happens with all military relationships, Vince had to move away, this time to attend training in Texas. Kelly, of course, was head over heels for him, so she would fly out to visit him. And that must have been when they decided to get married because they settled on a small Justice of the Peace wedding in San Antonio. Janice said she and her husband flew from Georgia to San Antonio to attend the small ceremony. Vince and Kelly were married on July 1st, 2006. The following year, Kelly and Vince did what a lot of us do. They had a second, more formal wedding. This one took place at Kelly's grandma's church in Georgia. After San Antonio, the Abad's PCS'd or moved to Edwards Air Force Base in California. Everyone typically describes Edwards as being in the middle of nowhere, although it is only about 90 miles slash 90 minutes from Los Angeles. But I guess with traffic, I mean, it really can add some time. While Kelly was living at Edwards Air Force Base, she was working on her medical assistant degree. Janice visited Kelly a few times in California, especially after Kelly got pregnant because Kelly was one of those preggy moms who had really bad morning sickness her entire pregnancy. I mean, Janice described it as really bad. Eventually, in the summer of 2007, Kelly gave birth to their first baby, a baby girl by the name of Kyrie. Kelly was thrilled to be a mom and she devoted all of her time to her baby girl. By 2008, the family was wheels up again when the Air Force sent the family overseas to Kadena Air Base on the island of Okinawa in Japan. I know from experience that an overseas assignment can be a joyous time, but it can also be a little bit lonely, especially living in a place with a different language. But Kelly didn't seem to mind the move. Kelly was happy to have Skype and be able to keep in contact with her mom every two or three days. Kelly tried to respect the 13-hour time difference, but Janice shared with me personally that sometimes if Kelly got really upset about something during the day in Japan, she would call her mom in the middle of the night Georgia time just to vent. And Janice, ever the good mom, she would often try to hear her daughter out even though she was very tired. At times, little things tended to make Kelly uneasy. For example, it could be her feelings of inferiority, or she would get upset if she tried to make Vince a Latino dinner meal and it didn't come out right. One time, it turns out, the dog got out while Vince was away and Kelly called her mom frantic and very upset. Listen, I call my mom about everything, so I get it. Even though these calls could be inconvenient for a sleeping mom, Janice always knew that if her daughter was feeling some sort of way, she would hear about it. When Kelly arrived in Japan, she became pregnant with their first son and her intense morning sickness returned. But Kelly was thrilled to be pregnant with a boy because she really wanted Vince to have a son. When Vinny was born in early 2010, Janice recalled that she flew out to be with her daughter and grandkids. Janice visited Okinawa for almost a month. Janice remembered that Kelly was upset because she desperately wanted to breastfeed, but the baby wouldn't latch. On occasion, when Kyrie had a rough night and didn't want to sleep because, you know, she was like, what, like a three or four year old, Janice would wake up and try to help out by calming Kyrie. So, you know, the sleep deprived parents could sleep at least in small increments. While at Kadena, Kelly volunteered a few hours a week at the Hawk, which is H-A-W-C, which is the Health and Wellness Center on the Military Installation. Kelly was also involved at an off-base church called Maranthana Baptist Church. Kelly also participated in mommy and me events with other spouses on base. For example, a few times a week, the moms would get together at a park and let the kids play. Sometimes they would meet for lunch. Kelly really knew her way around Okinawa. When Janice went to visit her, she was surprised that Kelly had gotten her international driver's license and she was taking her mom all over the island to sightsee. 
And the more I learned about Kelly, I realized why she probably knew her way around town so well. You see, when the Abad family first moved to Japan, they lived off base, so they lived among the locals. But due to some issues with their dog Pogo, a schnauzer, they ended up relocating to on-base housing on Kadena. Anyway, Kelly loved the island, but sometimes living on an island can weigh on you. And by the time Kelly went missing, Kelly had shared with her mom that she was really excited that they would be getting their next military assignment soon. She was hopeful for Germany or Alaska, but the assignment gods had not yet spoken, meaning Vince's assignment had not yet dropped. Chapter three, the day Kelly went missing. You know, I, I invested a good year almost working full time on behalf of her and her family. And it, it just got to the point where I wasn't even living in Okinawa anymore. And there's only so much that I can do. And it, you know, it, it's sad. It's, it's really sad because I think that most people that you talk to will say that the circumstances were really bizarre really strange. There's a lot of things that don't add up. And I think fairly universally, people would say that they were uncomfortable with how all of it went down. Something doesn't feel right. I think that that's pretty universal, you know, but there's only so much that you can do with that. You know, when you run into dead ends. When a person goes missing, the timeline of what happened the day leading up to the disappearance is very important. And sadly, when Janice found out her daughter was missing thousands of miles away, she felt like she wasn't getting any answers from people who should be looking for her daughter. For instance, the investigators or even her son-in-law. She had to work diligently to reconstruct the timeline for the day Kelly went missing. Janice arrived in Japan about two weeks after Kelly went missing. While there, Janice passed out flyers and Janice had a person who helped her set up interviews. She was setting up interviews with random people on the island who might be familiar with Kelly's daily tasks. I'm going to call this person Stacy. Stacy was a military dependent at the time. Stacy remembered hearing about a missing military spouse and just being intrigued by the entire thing. Stacy also recalled reaching out to Janice and even offering her a place to stay while she stayed in Japan to look for her daughter. Stacy wasn't sure if Janice would take her up on her offer, but Janice did. And Stacy revealed to me that for the following year, while she was a full-time student, Stacy helped Janice with whatever she needed. Stacy also took extensive notes of things that occurred after Kelly's disappearance. This is Stacy. I think I started seeing everything on Facebook that there was a woman that was missing and I was living in Okinawa, Japan at the time. So naturally the case really caught my attention. I was pretty glued to it, you know, trying to figure out, wow, where did this woman go? And then all of a sudden they found her truck and the note and everything. I'm trying to remember whether I connected with the mother before they found her truck or after, but I did reach out to her and just said, you know, we have a home in Okinawa, Japan. If you want to come here, you are more than welcome to stay with us. I will, you know, help you the best that I can, you know, at the time, you know, I wasn't really working. I was a student full time. And so I thought, okay, I can, I can put my attention here. And I wasn't sure if, if she would respond to that or not, but she did. And I ended up really helping her personally quite a bit for, for at least a year. And when she came to Okinawa, you know, she stayed with us for a little bit. And she also had like 
uh, a little hotel area and I would help her with visitations with the kids. So I did get to meet Vince. I also organized um, some meetings with the local media and things like that. And I would help Miss Janice attend those meetings and also printed up enormous batches of files and basically papered the entire island with missing persons files and trying to connect with people who have talked to her or anywhere that any information that Janice gave me, I would try to follow up with if she told me about people or places or things, I would try to follow up the best that I could with any resources I had on island. And that was pretty much my role, but it, it was more supportive than anything and just really trying to reach out. Well, we also did a few searches too. We did organized searches just based on things that were told, like what she was wearing and where things were found or places she used to go and places she would visit and all kinds of strange tips that would come in, but nothing ever really added up. A core group of us that really became close friends through this. We all became pretty entrenched in the case and, and served Miss Janice in various different capacities when she was here in Okinawa and then when she was back in the States as far as coordinating information and getting it back to her, especially because she was grieving and that can be really intense emotionally. And we would all kind of take turns with trying to help her and get as much information as possible. When we had the searches, it never really felt very effective. There were a couple people within the military that also held searches and like up around the rocks and, you know, like climbing gear and stuff like that to try to get down and see where she might be. We did things more based off of whatever Janice would say, like, I remember she used to like this park. So we would go to that park or, you know, they said they saw somebody saw Kelly here. Can you go over here and ask people? Can you ask questions? And we would go and we would take pictures and we would look in strange places or premonitions that people had. As you heard, while Janice was in Okinawa, she conducted her own interviews with neighbors and friends and even reached out to security forces who surprisingly seemed to be running this missing persons investigation. If you know anything about military investigations, while there are many investigative bodies in the military, the two main ones are security forces and OSI. That's for the Air Force. To simplify their roles, I will simply say that security forces, they are the military police for the Air Force, and they do have an investigative arm called SFOI, Security Forces Office of Investigations. And this arm investigates petty offenses or basically misdemeanor offenses. OSI, on the other hand, is the head honcho of investigations. And they take care of all the heavy hitters, a.k.a. felony level offenses, murders, rapes, robberies, that type of stuff. Well, knowing this, it might be shocking to learn that security forces was taking the lead on investigating a missing military spouse overseas. Kelly's mom, of course, felt that maybe OSI should have taken the lead. Heck, she felt the FBI should be involved as well. You have a missing American in another country. The following is what I have pieced together from my conversations with Janice, from seeing email communications from Pastor Bob and email communications between a security forces investigator and Janice. I also used my personal communications with reporter Matt Burke to inform this timeline. Wednesday, October 26, 2011 was not looking like it was going to be a typical day for the Abad family. Kelly's car was having some issues, something about the transmission or something. Kelly woke up, got the kids ready that morning, and took Kyrie to preschool. Kyrie did a few hours at the Maranthana Church throughout the week, and this was one of her school days. Kelly returned home and Skyped with her mom and dad, who were living in Georgia. When we were talking to her on Skype that morning, 
which was night here, Tuesday night here, Wednesday morning there. Uh, she'd already taken Kyrie to pre-K at Maranatha, and uh, she had Benny with her. So we visited with both of them. She was having trouble with her car, and she was telling her daddy about it. He was telling her what to do. Yeah, I don't know if it was the transmission or, and he told her what to do. And and then during that call, uh, Vince was flying around because they have to get in so many hours, and he was flying. Well, uh, he called, and he told her, take the car back to work where I work and change it for the band. I think that's what he said. So anyway, uh, apparently that's what she did. Janice overheard Kelly tell her pops about her car troubles, and poor Larry, a million miles away, was trying to instruct his daughter on what she needed to do to get it squared away. And the grandparents were also very happy to be able to see little Vinny on video. Vinny had had some issues with his walking in his young life. He wasn't even two at the time. And Kelly was excited on this particular day because he had been fitted for some new shoes that were supposed to help him walk. During the Skype call, Kelly also told her mom that she was excited for the upcoming PCS. She wasn't sure where they were going, but she was hopeful for Germany or Alaska. Janice asked Kelly if there was any chance they'd be moving to the Carolinas, and Kelly scoffed. Mom, that's way too close. Presumably, she said that because she was talking about not wanting to be so close to home. Kelly told Janice that she'd have to get the kids some new clothes for the big move because they were outgrowing their clothes. Kelly told Janice the weather was getting chilly in Japan and then asked her mom to get her some Ugg boots. Janice was like, how much do these Ugg boots cost? And when Kelly told her mom, her mom was outraged at how expensive they were. Same girl, same. Janice just kind of chuckled and she was just like, we will talk about it. Kelly told her mom about the ceremony at church that night and how Kyrie would be getting her certificate. Janice remembers that during the Skype conversation, Vince called the house. So Janice assumed that at some point, Kelly went and exchanged cars with Vince, although no one has been able to confirm this for me, meaning that Kelly took her car to Vince's job, picked up Vince's car, and took that with her. Through Janice's personal sleuthing, she learned that Kelly went to the Hawk that day for some volunteer work. Then afterwards, she swung by the preschool to pick up Kyrie. Also, I haven't been able to find out what Kelly did with Vincent Jr. when she went to work at the Hawk as a volunteer. Maybe, maybe a neighbor watched him. Maybe she took him with her. It's really unclear, but not crucial for the storyline. But it is something that I continue to wonder. According to one of Kelly's neighbors, Kelly and the kids got back to base housing around 3.30 p.m. that day. And when Kelly got home, she and the kids and the neighbors played outside until roughly 5 p.m. While we cannot know for certain what Kelly did from 5 to 7 p.m., we know from Pastor Bob that Kelly and the kids were on time for 7 p.m. service that night. Pastor Bob did confirm that Kelly and the kids left church after service and Vince stayed with him. According to an email which Janice received from a security forces investigator, this is what security forces pieced together after Kelly left church. I was able to see this message personally. And this is what security forces told Janice. Quote, Kelly left church and is seen coming through the gate around 8.37 p.m. Vincent called Kelly and asked her to return to church so they can talk about the emails. At 9.09 p.m., Kelly called Vincent and told him she was going to kill herself, then hung up the phone. Around 9.11 p.m., Kelly's vehicle is seen leaving Kadena in the direction of Cape Zampa. Around 9.15 p.m., Kelly's vehicle is seen through an off-base camera headed towards Cape Zampa. 
After 9.15 p.m., Kelly's vehicle isn't seen on any other camera system. Around 9.12 p.m., Kelly's phone was turned off and never turned back on. On Saturday, 29 October 2011, Kelly's vehicle is found at Cape Zampa at 0420. Kelly's phone, ID, keys, and wedding rings were found inside the vehicle, end quote. When Janice was in Japan, she was eager to meet up with Kelly's neighbors to find out if they had seen or heard anything. Before I tell you what she learned, let me tell you about Kelly's house. Kelly lived in a fourplex, kind of like row houses. There were four houses all connected to each other, each one of them sharing at least one wall with a neighbor. The houses had two levels and the bedrooms were upstairs. So Janice spoke with one of Kelly's immediate neighbors, one with a mutual wall with Kelly. Janice and this female military spouse met at a Starbucks. The neighbor told Janice that no one had ever come to her house to interview her about Kelly's disappearance, which she found odd. But this neighbor was happy to mind her business anyway. The fact that no one had interviewed Kelly's neighbor shocked Janice. If Kelly had gone missing, wouldn't the neighbors be like a big witness, especially in this case? This is what the neighbor told Janice. She told me that she usually just minded her own business and that she had put her kids down to bed to sleep. And um, she heard all these doors slamming and people yelling. And I said, well, didn't you look outside out the window? Because it's two-story houses. And she said, well, no, I just thought it was a bunch of kids roaming up and down the street, you know, and, and I try to mind my own business. So she wouldn't elaborate any more than that. And she was also PCS and cleaning her house, trying to get ready for inspection too. So, um, and she had one or two of her kids with her. Uh, we, we met in the coffee shop, uh, Starbucks. This neighbor really seemed to just not want to get involved. I was interested in talking to this neighbor myself, but when I spoke to Janice about it, she told me that the neighbor passed away within a year or two of Kelly's disappearance due to complications from an illness. I confirmed this with another close neighbor of Kelly's. The day after Kelly went missing, one neighbor told Janice that Vince basically just saw her and asked her, quote, Kelly's gone. Have you seen her? End quote. It was very just nonchalant. Another interesting fact about this case is that Kelly had made future plans. She had plans to meet up with a friend for lunch the following day. And on the day that she went missing, she responded to a Halloween party invite requesting more information. She was wondering about the time and location of the party and also wanted to know if she could bring the kids. Janice also recalled that in preparation for Halloween, which was less than a week away from her disappearance, Kelly had already purchased the kids' Halloween costumes. In preparing for this episode, which is unlike most of the cases that I cover, which are solved, I got to wondering how long it would take from when Kelly drove onto the base until she got home. She was seen driving into the base at 8.37 p.m. I spoke to one of her neighbors. So real quickly, let me explain what I learned about the housing as I indicated. Kelly lived in Stillwell Park. It was the fourplex and they were all numbered A, B, C, D. So one neighbor who spoke to me, JC, she told me that it would take approximately, I don't know, like five to 10 minutes to drive from the gate to Kelly's house. Now, of course, there are various gates that Kelly could use, but we don't know which one specifically they did. But that's what she told me as a time frame. So let's assume that Kelly and the kids drove through the base from church at 8.37 p.m. 
It took her, let's split the baby and say seven minutes to arrive home and park. That puts her at 8.45 p.m. She then has to get a four and one-year-old into the house and changed into their pajamas and then into bed. Realistically, let's make this, on the conservative side, 12 to 15 minutes. This puts us at 8.58 to 9 p.m. Mind you, let's add another two or three minutes for the conversation that Pastor Bob allegedly overheard, and that puts us at 9.03 p.m. Then we are to believe that the kids stay in bed and fall quickly to sleep while Kelly gets back into her car and drives off the base at 9.11 p.m. Her phone is then switched off at 9.12 p.m., according to the email from security forces, and is never turned back on. I mean, as I just indicated, it's possible. But is it realistic? I don't know. What do you think? Chapter 4. The Car Kelly's car was found at Cape Zampa. Cape Zampa is the westernmost point of Okinawa. It's a roughly 35-minute drive from Kadena Air Base, and the Cape hosts the Zampa Lighthouse, which is the tallest lighthouse on the island. The cliff from Cape Zampa has a pretty steep drop at 31 meters, which is a little over 100 feet. And it was at Cape Zampa that Kelly's car was found. Finding Kelly's car should have felt like a big break in Kelly's disappearance. However, it just added to the mystery. You see, Kelly went missing on Wednesday night. She was reported missing on Thursday morning, and allegedly everyone had been out looking for Kelly. Honestly, I don't really know what that means, but that's what I've heard. Who was looking for Kelly? Were they searching on base? Were they searching off base? Did anyone ever think to search Cape Zampa prior to finding her car? Kelly's car was found during the wee hours of Saturday, October 29th. Inside the car were many valuables. Kelly's wedding rings, her ID card, her driver's license, her cell phone, and a note. The note read, quote, love my kids, love my hubby and parents, bye, end quote. Was this a suicide note? Was it just a note that happened to be in the car? Was the note even written by Kelly? According to reporter Matt Burke, who served as a liaison at one point for Janice, the Okinawa police conducted handwriting analysis on the note and it was inconclusive. Additionally, the Japanese authorities have confirmed that there were no writing utensils in the car. So if Kelly did write it, did she write the note at home and then leave the pen? If she did in fact jump from the cliff, as investigators wanted Janice to believe, did she take the pen with her? Janice doesn't tend to believe that this is a suicide note. She describes Kelly as very long-winded. If a regular person could say something in 10 words or less, Kelly would use 100 words. So why, in her last message to her kids, would she keep it this brief? But the note wasn't the biggest mystery. The biggest mystery is that when a Kadena Air Base military spouse heard that Kelly's car was found at Cape Zampa three days after she went missing, she did not buy the suicide angle. But she wasn't just incredulous because she thought Kelly would never kill herself. No, she didn't even know Kelly. This military spouse couldn't believe this narrative because this witness had been at or near that exact spot where Kelly's car was found a night earlier, and she hadn't seen Kelly's car there. Wait, what? So the question became, where was Kelly's car for three days? This witness is Bernice Whitmer. When Bernice Whitmer realized that she was holding on to crucial information about a missing military spouse, she was eager to let investigators know. 
Bernice told reporter Matt Burke that she called OSI in the early days of the investigation to report what she knew and the fact that she was at Cape Zampa until 11 p.m. on October 28th and Kelly's car was not there that night. Bernice left messages with agents and no one ever got back to her. Eventually, Bernice's husband was PCS back to the U.S. and she just kind of forgot about Kelly and everything in the chaos of life. In fact, everyone basically stopped talking about Kelly's case and Bernice just figured they found her. But it wasn't until she saw Janice posting about Kelly on Facebook that she realized that Kelly was still missing. As luck would have it, or thanks to the PCS gods, Bernice and her spouse PCS back to Okinawa years later. And this time, Bernice did not forget about Kelly. In the fall of 2016, five years after Kelly went missing, after thinking about Kelly for all those years, Bernice walked into the Kadena OSI office and filled out a statement about what she saw back in 2011. Around this same time, Janice Cribbs had provided a power of attorney to an Okinawa-based reporter, Matt Burke, to allow him to look into Kelly's case. Specifically, they were trying to obtain any records that he could about Kelly's disappearance. Matt Burke worked with the Okinawa police and he was able to gather some information. And just to be clear, Matt did not look at any Japanese files. He basically just acted as a family member would act if they had questions. A Japanese police representative met Matt and allowed Matt to ask any questions he wanted. Matt was curious to know if the Okinawa police knew about Bernice and how she said that she had been at Cape Zampa on October 28th at night and hadn't seen Kelly's car. The Okinawa police said, no, we never, we never even heard of Bernice or heard that she could be a witness. But they weren't surprised by her statement because they had a Japanese national that came forward with the same exact information early on. Wait, what? What in the world is going on here? Who is running this show anyway? As told to me by reporter Matt Burke, when Kelly's car was discovered on October 29th, parked right next to her was a Japanese local national. Quote, an officer from the Yomadan police substation questioned this man and asked how long Kelly's car had been parked there. According to the Japanese man, the evidence was not there at 7 a.m. on October 28th, end quote. You see, according to the Japanese witness, he had been in that same exact spot for 24 hours and was still there when Kelly's car was found. But the kicker is that when he first parked his car there, Kelly's car was not there. Remember that part where I told you that finding Kelly's car would add to the mystery? So let's recap. Kelly went missing on Wednesday night. According to the security forces investigator, her car was seen leaving base in the direction of Cape Zampa. A Japanese witness was in that location at Cape Zampa and did not see Kelly's car at 7 a.m. on Friday, October 28th. An American witness, Bernice Whitmer, visited Cape Zampa as late as 11 p.m. on Friday, October 28th, and Kelly's car was still not there. And then at 4 a.m., Kelly's car was found at Cape Zampa. So, if this was a suicide, where was Kelly for two and a half days before she allegedly parked her car and jumped off the cliff? Where was Kelly? Where was the car? If security forces or the Japanese authorities were responsible for looking into surveillance video, how far up the road did they search? You see, it just doesn't add up. Kelly's phone wasn't used in those three days when her and her car were missing. Her credit card slash bank accounts weren't accessed in those days. What happened to Kelly? When I chatted with Matt Burke, who is familiar with Okinawa and is aware or has been to Cape Zampa, 
He has a hard time believing that if Kelly jumped from that cliff, she would have been able to jump with enough oomph to miss the jagged rocks on the side of the cliff. Matt provided me with some examples of people being swept out from Cape Zampa and their bodies being quickly recovered. He wrote, quote, in October 2016, three service members and three separate incidents were lost in the area of Anna Village's Meta Point, three miles from Zampa. In each, the bodies were quickly recovered offshore, end quote. Remember the cadaver dogs that I mentioned way at the beginning of this episode? Well, when they searched the area, they couldn't even find Kelly's scent at or near the car. Now, I don't place too much importance on this because cadaver dogs are trained to find dead people. And there are various scenarios where Kelly is alive at or near the car, regardless of if this was a suicide or an abduction. But I did want to mention the dogs since I know the Okinawa police brought them out there. According to what Matt Burke has told me from his discussions with the Okinawa police, none of the searchers found any evidence of Kelly in the area, not on the rocks, not on the side of the cliff, not in the water. Matt Burke interviewed Bernice about this odd fact, and she seems to think that it's impossible that if she jumped, they didn't find any sign of Kelly. She told Matt, quote, as tiny as she was and the way those rocks go down, they would have found something, torn clothing, torn flesh, something, end quote. Now, because you are indoctrinated in the true crime army, you're probably wanting to know about fingerprints. When investigators did a fingerprint sweep of Kelly's car, they found one fingerprint, one mother flipping fingerprint inside the car of a woman with two small children. Now, if this does not scream WTF, I really don't know what else to say. Authorities compared this one print to the husband's print because, you know, they probably thought hashtag the husband did it. But let's not forget, Vince had a pretty solid alibi with Pastor Bob and the sole fingerprint was not a match to Vince. Although even if it had been, he's the husband. He's probably been in the car a million times. But the kicker is that at some point, authorities thought, well, I guess the fingerprint could belong to Kelly. Okay, why wouldn't that have been their first initial thought? But anyway, according to my communication with Matt Burke, Kelly's fingerprints should have been on file in California from her time there. And they should have been on file with the Air Force since fingerprints are required to get an identification card. Well, apparently no one bothered to check those databases. Instead, in late December 2011, as told to me by Matt Burke, at least eight weeks after Kelly went missing, according to the Okinawa police spokesperson, OSI and the Japanese authorities went to the Abad house. Apparently, they went there to try to obtain a sample fingerprint belonging to Kelly. But they reported to Matt Burke that their search for Kelly's fingerprints at the house she once shared with her husband and two kids revealed zero fingerprints belonging to Kelly. After reviewing this and speaking with Matt Burke, we tend to agree that the Okinawa police have not been completely accurate with the information they released. I mean, according to their records, Kelly was not even at church the night she went missing, which clearly contradicts multiple seemingly reliable witnesses. But Matt Burke has not been able to compare his notes from when he spoke to the Okinawa spokesperson to anything that the Air Force has to say because the Air Force has declined all requests for information in this case. And I can confirm this was the case when I personally submitted a Freedom of Information Act request a year ago. It is definitely frustrating to say the least. One thing that popped into my head in considering Kelly's car was who found the car? And that question, regardless of who I have asked or how many news articles I have read, every time I ask who found the car, 
I am left with a blank stare. I heard kind of an absurd response, but because I haven't been able to corroborate the statement or speak to the person who allegedly found the car, I'm not going to make it public here. But doesn't it feel like it would be helpful to find out who found the car? And then there's the issue with Kelly's flip-flops. The night she went missing, she was wearing toe ring flip-flops. Those were allegedly found either near or in Kelly's car, which if like me, you had never been to Cape Zampa, that doesn't seem like a big deal that Kelly's flip-flops were found either in the car or outside the car. But to everyone who I have spoken to who has visited Cape Zampa specifically near where Kelly's car was found, well, various people told me that the rocks up there are so jagged that there is no way that a person, even a person on the verge of suicide, would walk barefoot from where Kelly was parked to where she would have jumped, if that is what truly happened. So again, I ask, did Kelly actually jump? What happened to Kelly Cribs Abad? Kelly's missing person story is complex. And because of this, I will bring you part two of this story next week. But you won't want to miss the remainder of the chapters where I will discuss Kelly and the other military spouses around her, Kelly's husband, Vince. I dive into a shocking discovery asking, was Kelly keeping a secret? And I discuss the final chapter where no one's talking, but everyone's talking. You won't want to miss part two. In the next few days, I will be releasing part two a little bit early for any of my Patreon or Apple premium subscribers. Before I go, I want to thank all the people who spoke with me to prep for this episode. I started my research on this case over two years ago, always hitting a snag, always feeling like I wasn't capable of telling Kelly's story. But this year, as we hit Kelly's 12th year since she went missing, I felt that the time was now or never. Thanks to Janice and Jennifer, Kelly's mom and sister, for allowing me to tell Kelly's story. Thank you to Jeff Smith, a concerned Marine veteran who has conducted various searches for Kelly on the island. He has also met with OSI and many Japanese investigators to try to get an update on Kelly's case. Thanks to Kate, Sam, Jessica, Bridget, Cheryl, and Bernice for filling in giant gaps and helping me to understand military spouse culture at Kadena. Thanks to Matt Burke and Kristen Davis who agreed to chat with me about Kelly's case. They are both reporters. And I owe a big, big thank you to Stacy, not her real name, who took hours to describe to me the first few weeks of the search for Kelly. Her detailed notes really helped to paint a picture for me, and you'll hear some more about those notes next time. In addition to my interviews with various people, I used various court filings to inform this story, such as police reports and statements and divorce filings. I also used articles from Stars and Stripes, NBC News, and CNN. I also spoke to Marissa from The Vanish Podcast, and I listened to her episode on Kelly. Before you leave today, please do me a favor and click that subscribe button. It's free wherever you're listening and it allows you to be notified as soon as I upload a new episode. You're either going to see a little check mark or a star. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Production. Shout out to all my supporters through Patreon and Apple Premium. The executive producers for this episode are Jen, Tina, Alicia, Falcon 13, Nicole, and Myrtle. Our newest Patreon associate producers are Daniela, Neil, Makita, M, and D. Gates Cat. Our newest Patreon assistant producers are Chanel, Anne, Carla, Martha, and Megan. The theme music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of this missing person story next week. 
I was working on her podcast. I don't want to.